The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Details that we're going to untangle here. Here is the foundational conviction. It is that God can be trusted. Something I think all of us here would acknowledge. Amen? But when the rubber meets the road, what about when our life is on the line? Is this the foundational conviction of our heart? And so I would just submit to you as we get into it, if any doubts linger, if there are questions that remain about the trustworthiness of God, then let them be drowned this morning in the Red Sea. If you remain unconvinced at this point, let the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, assure you wherever you find yourself this morning that God can be trusted. So let's get to the text. The Red Sea here teaches us, here's our first point, that God can be trusted when I don't know the way. God can be trusted when I don't know the way. Join me in your Bibles now. Read along with me in this first section of Scripture, beginning in chapter 13, verse 17. God's Word says this, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piharioth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. This is God's word for God's people. And it teaches us here that God can be trusted when I don't know the way. See, here's what we see here, that God sees what we can't see. God knows what is happening. He stands outside of time. He knows the beginning from the end and everything in between. And so while this journey out of Egypt is beginning for these two to three million Israelites, he knows exactly what is going to happen. He is taking them where? What have we seen in Exodus? He's taking them to the promised land, right? The land that's flowing with milk and Honey, that's right, he's, he's taking them to this land that he promised long before to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. First promised to Abraham and then down through the generations. This was the land that had been promised to them and for which they longed for, which they waited expectantly for with great hope of possessing. See, their forefathers had existed there, had lived there, but never possessed the land. And then as, he, as history went on, the famine came and Joseph was taken into slavery, rose through the ranks of the Egyptian government there, and then his brothers came and they settled, were there for several hundred years. And then now to the events of Moses here, they are finally heading back. 
And now it may seem odd as we were reading it there in verse 19 that these bones of Joseph are referred to, right? And why is this significant? Why is Moses including it here? Well, it is the symbol of their expectant hope of the returning to the promised land. As uh, the book of Genesis ends, in Genesis 50, verse 25, as Joseph is dying, he makes his sons promise that one day his bones would return to this land. And now, 400 years later, this is exactly where they are. These bones have become this hopeful reminder of the promise that God had made them there. It is a symbol of that Joseph trusted the Lord. God could be trusted, and Joseph had this trust, and now it is happening. And what's very interesting is it, we get this marker here as they're finally like just beginning the journey. And these bones would remain with them through their 40 years of wilderness wanderings. As they come to the edge then of the promised land, and as they go and defeat the, uh, Israel's enemies, those that occupied the land of Canaan, then as we get all the way to the end of the book of Joshua... In Joshua 24, verse 32, we're told as they are now they're coming to settle into the land, that once, finally now, Joseph's bones come and are buried there at Shechem with his forefathers. And so this little glimpse of hope and trust in the Lord is right here in front of us. To get to this promised land, God leads them away from the shortest route. Did you catch that? He did not take them kind of, if you know your, uh, your map, if you know your geography there, he didn't take them to the northeast through the land of the Philistines, but rather he took them a different way. You know, our maps, what do we follow as we try to find directions? Use Apple Maps, Google Maps, some of y'all Wazers, do you use Waze? or some other GPS tool on your phone. See, it knows the shortest route, right? Isn't that what we typically choose? We want the shortest route, or we want the route that we don't have to pay tolls. We want the route that avoids the traffic. I don't use it when I'm going to San Antonio very often, but when I start to see traffic backing up and accidents, which has happened to me like the last four times I've gone to San Antonio, there's been an accident. Um, it's another story. But... Uh, <laughs> The Lord knows better. He knows the routes better than any map tool that we have. But not only does the Lord know the best route, he also knows our hearts. So God leads them a different route, not because he's trying to prolong the trip uh, just for prolonging the trip's sake, but because he knows they aren't ready for battle. He knows that they lack the courage and the bravery that they would need. They might have been physically ready, they had weapons, they were, they were supplied, but they lacked this courage and trust in the Lord. And so God leads them in a more southward direction toward the Red Sea. Now there's some, uh, some locations here mentioned there in, uh, in, in chapter 13 and into 14. And as we go, and here's the reality. Honestly, nobody knows exactly precisely where these locations are. There's some general locations, there's some, uh, some, some, you know, some ideas, but the precise exact spots, nobody really knows. There's lots of speculation where they crossed and the route that they took. Your Bible may even have some maps as, of, that says potential routes, but the reality is that nobody fully specifically knows which is why there are oodles of documentaries and explorations out there trying to find the route in which they've gone. 
I don't know, as you know how your phone works and as you like search things and whatnot, there, all these like ads are popping up for a documentary about what really happened at the Red Sea. Keep popping up on my phone that knows I'm going. There's people that are looking all the time. You may have heard several years ago that there was supposedly like a chariot wheels found at the bottom of the Red Sea that were encrusted which it turns out was just a farce and wasn't actually uh, uh, real. But there's lots of speculation, and people are always seeking for it. In the same way that people are seeking for like Noah's Ark and the mountain upon which it landed, and they're trying, where Indiana Jones and others are looking for the Ark of the Covenant and all that. But even though we don't know the exact location, here is what we do know. That these events actually happened. That these events that God has made known to us what he wants us to know. If he wanted us to know the location, he would have made it very clear to us in his word. But there is something even more than these precise details that he wants us. He's teaching us that he can be trusted even when we don't know the way. He is teaching us here that he can be trusted even when we don't know the way. The uncertainty of the location does not diminish the certainty of God's deliverance for these people and our own self. It's teaching us to trust his leading. It is teaching us that God's route is the best. So here's the reality of when we're following the Lord, his way isn't always the shortest way, is it? His way isn't always the easiest way, is it? God's way doesn't always avoid the accidents and the, and, and the traffic jams, does it? But God's way is always best. He sees danger we can't see. He's hardening and softening hearts that we can't see. He leads the way uh, because he knows the temptations of our hearts better than even we do. And so for these Israelites, he is manifesting his presence through this uh, cloud, this pillar of cloud by day to lead them, and this pillar of fire by night to lead them. And for us, he is leading the way through his word. His word, which is trustworthy. His word that, uh, as Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, that every word of God proves true. He is a shield for those who take refuge in him. And because his word can be trusted, therefore God's ways can always be trusted. As Psalm 119, 105 says that his word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God leads us by his word. His route is through the wisdom of his word. And for today, God's route through this COVID business is no different, isn't it? How many of you are ready for it to be over with? How many wish the route was much shorter? How many wished the route was much easier? Well, here's the reality that we're all, all, all learning. God's, ways, God's route is not always the shortest nor the easiest, but he sees the dangers that we don't see. He is hardening and softening hearts that we can't see. He knows the temptations of our hearts better than we do, and so we are following him. Despite regulations changing at work and school and from our city, even though they're changing daily and weekly, but God's ways of faithful obedience for us are never changing. So we follow him, we can trust him, even when we don't know the way we follow faithfully in his commandments. See, as we get the Red Sea goes on, the Red Sea teaches us something else. It's that God's, uh, God can be trusted here when my fears are loud. If you're taking the uh, notes here, here's the second point, that God can be trusted when my fears are loud. Join me now in verse 5 of chapter 14, and let's read this next section together. It says this, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, 
The mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea at Hiroth and in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. This is God's word for God's people. God can be trusted, church, when our fears are loud. I know it's been a few days here since the Passover. As we're following the story, it's been a few days since that Passover, that night where all the firstborn were slain. The firstborn of those who did not have the blood spread over their doorposts and the angel of death, the destroyer moved through the land and all the firstborn were slain. And we can imagine the grief, we can imagine the graves, we can imagine what has happened in the days since them as we know the Israelites have departed, but imagine what had been happening in the land of Egypt in those days. Pharaoh had just cast the Israelites and now the dust has settled in some way and he has a change of mind. And we're shown that he stubbornly is refusing to relent. It's as if he comes to his senses as a, as a king and as a ruler, and he realizes the economic hit that is about to take place. All their labor force, every this uh, two to three million uh, workforce here is now suddenly gone. And he thinks to himself, what have we done? What is, how are we going to recover from this? And so Pharaoh, he fears losing control over his kingdom. He has forgotten the great and grievous judgments of God that have been unleashed over the previous months. And so what does he do? He musters his army, or what's left of it anyways, these 600 double-horse chariots with an archer in them, a formidable attack in those days, a formidable enemy. And they begin their pursuit of the Israelites, right? And they see them coming. And what does it say the Israelites do as this army is, is coming upon them? It says what in verse 10? That they feared greatly. Whereas Pharaoh feared losing his kingdom, now the Israelites are fearing for their lives. They had forgotten the great and glorious mercy that God had shown them to deliver them. They had forgotten what had happened in the previous months and how God had, has revealed himself, who he is, and he has shown himself to be mighty and powerful and trustworthy. And here and now, the enemy looked more formidable than they were. 600 Egyptians versus what we're told, 600,000 men plus women and children. 
It says that they, what, they cried out to the Lord. You know, they cried out to the Lord previously, too. Back in chapter 2, when their oppression was great, when Pharaoh at that time had ordered the killing of the firstborn babies of all male children of the Hebrews, it said that they cried out to the Lord. Didn't we see God hearing and remembering and seeing? And in that sense, they cried out to him here in their fear and panic. They cry out to him, and in both times, God delivers them. And yet, even as they're crying out to Moses, their leader, they say some incredibly foolish things in verses 11 and 12, don't they? It's like, as you read this, you're thinking to yourself, really, is, is bondage better? Really? Like, do you really believe that? You're like, do you really believe that Pharaoh is a better master than the Lord? Do you really believe that what you're leaving is, is, is better than where God is taking you? But here's the point. Don't miss this. Fear says foolish things. Panic causes us to think foolish, ungodly, faithless things. And so they, they, they cry out and they attack Moses as their leader and accuse him because they are f- afraid. But compare this then with what Moses says in the faith of Moses in, chapter, in verses 13 and 14. To all these things, he just simply tells them, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. You won't see these Egyptians again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. See, church, fear says foolish things, but faith says courageous things. Faith keeps its eyes on on the Lord and it keeps our our eyes fixed on what we know to be true even when our fears are speaking loudly in our minds. See, these these two examples of what they're saying, it reminds us of Jesus' words in Luke 6, 45, right? When he's talking about you will know somebody by their fruits, you know a tree by its fruits and you know a person by their fruits. And so he says, out of the abundance or the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. God is so good in moments like this to reveal these things and some by, by what we are saying shows what is going on in our heart. And so Moses' courage, he wasn't found in their overwhelming numbers, but his courage was found in the Lord. The Lord who had led them thus far and wasn't about to abandon them. The Lord who, who had already proven his power over the water in turning the Red Sea to blood and who had already proven his power over the people, he could be trusted Again, and God can be trusted when our fears are loud, when panic is welling up, when COVID numbers are on the rise, when media sources are sounding the alarm, we can trust the Lord. So here's the, the reality, church. We live in a day where the most fearful way is often heralded as the right way. We live in a day where the worst case scenario is often perceived as the most likely scenario. Church, I want us to call, I want to call us to live in faith in these days to fear not, to stand firm, to see that God is working around us. COVID will not be here forever. God is fighting for us. We have only to be silent in our trust of him. This is the call to faith and to follow these godly leaders who God has put in your life who are calling you to keep your eyes fixed on Christ, your heart centered in the gospel and your activities founded and centered in the great commission. 
I see this call of Moses, this call of myself here, isn't a call to reckless and, uh, recklessness and ignorance, but a call to faith, a call to trust in the Lord, to follow Christ. See, Christ's call to the crowd in, in Mark 8 that we saw several months ago is no less true today. As we follow Christ, no matter what, as we follow Christ in our plenty and in our want, as we follow him when our fears are louder, when our faith is loud, here's the call of Christ. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? These are Christ's words for his people. See, God can be trusted when our fears are loud and when the cost is great. But here, church, we must make sure that as we are in his word, as we are following him, that Christ's voice is the loudest voice that is leading us. This is how we follow him in trust. See, the Lord is teaching us these lessons through the Red Sea. He's teaching us that he can be trusted in every circumstance when we don't know the way, when our fears are welling up and loud in us. But here's the third point. God can also be trusted when the threats are real. When the threats are real. Come back to the scripture with me in verse 15 and we'll read the rest of the chapter. It says this, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us free, flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained." But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power 
that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. This is God's word for God's people. Isn't this a, an incredible event? Isn't it, who, who would love to be here? If you, know, you had a time machine to go back in, 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 in time into biblical history, how many of you would love to go back to this event and just witness it? Just to be a part of like, not even necessarily being a part of the Israelites or the Egyptians, but just to like be standing on a mount out there and just watching all of this happen. Wouldn't that be kind of cool? It'd be so cool here because here the, the Israelites are, are stuck between the, you know, the proverbial rock and a hard place. Here as they are fleeing and, uh, towards their freedom, they have, they have a sea that is before them and a mighty army that is behind them. And though there were these two to three million Israelites, they had one warrior on their side that was the deciding factor, the Lord. The Lord who would fight for them and the Lord who was no match for any enemy. You know the scene, we've read it here, you're very familiar with it. Moses, he lifts the staff of God, that instrument that God had used to, to symbolize his presence, that he had used many times to deliver them and to perform these miracles. He, he lifts it up and the, and the waters begin to recede. The cloud that had been guiding their way now moves to guard them their rear side. And now the Israelites cross over on dry ground through the night. God confuses the Egyptians and they plunge in after them into the water, so much so that it crashes down upon them. And when the Israelites turn and look, they see their enemies floating dead there before them. See, this game between the Lord, this game between Yahweh and Pharaoh is over. God wins. Amen. God, God wins. Egypt has been decimated top to bottom. You realize this over the last several chapters here, what has happened to, Israel, to Egypt? It has been an, an entire economy ruined, a military annihilated, total societal collapse. Everything from their, their, their people, their population has been decimated. All their crops, all their food source, all their water source polluted or taken away. Now their leader is dead. Now their army has been decimated. They are a society that has been ruined. And what's very interesting also in the biblical timeline here, that there is no mention of a pharaoh for years hundreds of years until King Solomon, when we're told that Solomon married one of Pharaoh's daughter. But from this point on in biblical history, there's no mention of a Pharaoh, of a leader over this people. Yahweh has just demonstrated that he is the God over Israel. He is God over the entire earth. He is God over the water. He is God over everything in creation. He is God and ruler and a defeater of every Egyptian deity. He is the Lord. He has won. And for the Israel's sake, as they find themselves here, yes, the threats were real. Yes, the, the threats upon their life were real, but God can be trusted. He has proven himself over and over again that no threat, no enemy is too much for him. That his way is best and can be trusted. And so wherever you find yourself today, whatever threats that you may be facing in your life, you can be certain that as a Christ follower, he will fight for you. 
Now, I doubt any of us here that we're facing the threats of a sea before us. We're facing, you know, a, uh, we're running from a mighty army that is bearing down upon us. Or that we are, you know, we are receiving death threats because someone wants to murder you. Now, if you are, if you find yourself in a place where you're fearing for your life, if somebody is, is uh, threatening you and has you held in a, a bondage and is forcing you to silence for anything, there are two people you need to call, your pastor and the police. We want to know, and we want to come alongside you. But if that's not the case, that's not many of us are facing threats like that. But I don't want to minimize it. Our threats, we face threats of doubt. Is God really who he says he is? We face the, the threats of, of asking these questions. Is God even real? Is, is, is this God of the Bible, is he any different than the many gods out there? Where is, where is God? I, 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 don't, I don't hear him speaking. We face threats of a diagnosis. That is it the worst case. Will I test positive? We, te- we, we face the threats of a disease of, of, of how bad is this going to be? We face threats of disaster and wonder, can, are we going to make it another day? What is, I can't afford to be out of work. Whatever threats you find yourself, church, you can, find, you can know that God can be trusted and he will take you through the sea. At his way is best. He is, he is leading you that no matter what you're facing, let the Red Sea be your reminder that God, you can be trusted. That his way is best. His way is through the sea. And you have the spiritual gear you need. You have the church guide you need with God's people around you. And ultimately, as a Christ follower, you have the God who you need on your side. Amen. We have all that we need for life and godliness. We have all that we need for these days. And let the Red Sea be our reminder that God can be trusted. I want us to be like Asaph. As you read through the Bible, as I've said, you will find uh, that God refers back, uh, God's people refers back to this event as kind of the supreme example of God's trustworthiness, that he can be followed And so Asaph in Psalm 77, he records these words describing this scene. And he says this, Water saw you, O God. When the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Church, God is leading us through these days, and he can be trusted. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.